You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Speaking on this passage, pastor theologian R.C. Sproul says, It is sad that we usually look at this text and the parallel texts in the other Gospels only on Easter Sunday. For the Christian, every Lord's Day is to be a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. So this text should be one we come back to again and again. 19th century British congregational pastor, R.W. Dale, when writing a sermon on the resurrection, already well into his ministry, his biographer writes, The thought of the risen Lord broke in upon him as it had never done before. Christ is alive, I said to myself. Alive. And then I paused. Alive. And then I paused again. Alive. Can that really be true? Living as really as I myself am. I got up and walked about repeating, Christ is living. Christ is living. It was to me a new discovery. I thought that all along I had believed it. But not until that moment did I feel sure about it. I then said, my people shall know it. I shall preach about it again and again until they believe it as I do now. Then began the custom of singing in his church on every Sunday morning an Easter hymn. Matt Carter calls this section of his commentary the most radical event in history. And today I'm going to hijack that common theme and look at the radical changes that occurred on that day. And like a good Southern Baptist pastor, I'll give you three points. This changes the entire fabric of reality. This changes our standing and our relationship with God. This changes our purpose. To look at the change in reality, we first must look at death. Job 14, 1 and 2. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. 2 Samuel 14, 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Psalm 89, 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Romans 5, 12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ecclesiastes 3.2, Psalm 90.10, Isaiah 46-8, James 1.10, 1 Peter 1.24 and 25, Hebrews 9.27, 1 Corinthians 15, Ezekiel 18, Luke 12. I can keep going. All throughout scripture we're reminded that death is a certainty. It's known. 
It's universal. All over music, poetry, art, literature, film. It's an industry. Life insurance, funeral homes, cemeteries, hospice. Everyone who is old enough to grasp the concept operates knowing that all will die. Death is a part of life. As religious people, most believe that there is something after death. All forms of heavens and utopias, reincarnations, enlightenment, getting your own planet to populate. As Christians, we have a God who broke into history and turned the inevitable on its head. As declared in 2 Timothy 1.10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. As Christians, we can know with certainty that death has no victory because our Savior conquered it. Now to turn to our passage, verses 1 through 3. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. At this point, at least to the knowledge of the disciples, nothing had changed. Mary was headed to visit the tomb, likely to continue the mourning process. It's to be in the presence of the remains of her teacher. Or tend to the body with more ointments and perfumes. All of these common practices of the day. All of which we and cultures throughout history have done in one way or another. Memorial services, embalming a body, dressing them up in some of their nicest clothes. And why not? Just like we all know when we lose someone, Mary knew she was certain that Jesus was dead. And now she was in the process of dealing with it. Because even though death is certain, Losing people we love still hurts. So her natural reaction when seeing the tomb open was to panic. To immediately assume something's wrong. Grave robbers trying to find things of value. His religious enemies wanting to further humiliate him. Something. Something was wrong. And she didn't know what to do. So she did what most people do. She got help. Someone who could maybe help figure out what was going on. At least someone to tell what she saw. To come see and confirm that there was an issue. When she gets back and seeks out and tells Peter and John, their response is just as natural. 
They likely think, like many do, when alerted of an issue, let's go. We've got to do something. All kinds of scenarios going on in their heads, thinking those same things. A couple of guys probably thought processes of what we're going to do when we get there, when we find out what's going on. They find a grave robber or a religious leader. We can all relate on one level or another. I'm sure if we thought about it, we could identify on some level with what they're feeling, operating on pure emotion and limited information. How often does that happen to us in our everyday life? Here's something at work. One of your kids comes and tells you that their sibling's done something horrible and awful for absolutely no reason whatsoever. <laughs> you get into action. And we got two men fresh off the most horrific event imaginable that happened to someone they loved dearly. And now someone wants to add insult to injury. And they aim to correct it. Back to the passage, verses 4 through 8. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. So they arrive on scene and find that, in fact, there is more to the story. Among the things they expected to see, vandalism, grave robbers, even the body of Jesus, empty grave cloths were probably not among those things that they expected. So as with anything, when you find new evidence, you look at the evidence. Wheels start to turn. You try to figure out what's going on. We see this in the language. The most common use of saw in the Greek is blepo, which means to look, to see. But the the word that's used here is theorio which is to analyze. It's where the term theorize comes from, a concept that flies in the face of the common misconception of faith. Outside of Christian circles, anyway. That without thought, we just all decided. Like all these brothers and sisters this morning, they just decided, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. Sounds awesome get wet before having to sit in service for a couple hours. Sounds, sounds like great fun. So yeah, I believe. Cool. But contrary to popular belief, that's not our faith. Our faith involves historically enforced scripture, creeds, councils, confessions, the supernatural change of a heart of stone to one of flesh. 
The Holy Spirit that makes our faith endure. It involves a shift from death to life. To quote Tim Keller, if you... If your Christian faith is not shot through with all sorts of reason and thinking, it'll never last through the ups and downs of life in this world. Christian faith is obviously more than reasoning and thinking, but it's not less. So what were they theorizing? Maybe something like, if it were grave robbers or enemies, why would they take the time to remove 40 pounds of spice and Soaked wrappings that not only had value, but contained a corpse. Which would make their job a a great deal easier if they just kept it all bound up. If it was a follower of Jesus' teachings and ministry, desperate to be with him, or other disciples trying to establish this elaborate plan to fake his deity... Why would they dishonor him by moving him around exposed or run the risk of being caught with a body that was obviously Jesus? Or further, why would they not tell us, the closest disciples, that they were doing it? There was no sense in these or many other theories that we don't need to go over. Really, the only logical explanation was that Jesus was who he said he was. John went in, saw, and believed. That there is more to his death than what had always been true of death. As we see in the next verse, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They still didn't get the full picture. But they believed that their teacher was more than a teacher. And that truth was about to become clear to Mary as well. Verses 10 and 11. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels, oh, sorry, stop there, went to look into the tomb. Mary returns with no knowledge of what the disciples saw. So she did what came naturally. She mourned. Kent Hughes describes it like this. Mary was shortly afterwards standing outside the tomb alone, uninformed, and weeping. More accurately, She was sobbing and wailing because the word used in verse 11 is the same used to describe the mourners at Lazarus' grave. This was the traditional Eastern death wail and it came from the depths of her broken heart. Jesus had cast seven devils from Mary. She had sinned much. She had been forgiven much. And she loved much. Her heart was in indescribable anguish. On top of the horror of his death came this last indignity. They had taken his body and were undoubtedly going to make further sport of him. Imagine 
the pain and compounded sorrow. Not just the events of the last three days, but the events of her entire time with Jesus, her conversion, the ministry she saw and was a part of. All that she was, she had been through before that, that Jesus pulled her out of, saved her from. All the time she spent serving him, learning from him. Everything that happened on Friday. And now this. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. And here we have Mary trying to process what's just happened. These people just appeared. They don't seem to know why I'm upset. How could they not know why I'm upset? Everyone knows why I'm upset. Everyone saw these things happen this weekend. I don't know what's going on. So she tries to explain, still desperate for an answer. Verse 14 and 15. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Now she sees another person in the tomb. Obviously, John knew it was Jesus when he wrote it, but Mary doesn't recognize him whether that be because his glorified body looked different. She had tears in her eyes and was still reeling from everything going on. Or he had just not revealed himself to her. We're not sure. But in the next moment, it all changes. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani which means teacher. And here, a beautiful picture of Christ as the good shepherd. Earlier in chapter 10, John says, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. All the confusion, all of the emotions, went away when he said, Mary. It all changed. The faith that allowed her to see him is the same faith that enables all of his sheep to see him in these texts. To know that through him, 
all our lives, all of history, and all of reality has been changed. Now the second point. Our standing in relationship with God changes. Verse 17. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. 108 times in the book of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. 27 times as my Father. 71 times as the Father. And one time as the disciple's Father. When the penalty of sin was paid on Friday and Christ conquered death through resurrection on Sunday, the disciples and all followers of Christ went from being cut off from God, being enemies of God, sinners dead in our trespasses, to children of God, alive in Christ. This is also the only time in John that Christ refers to disciples as brothers. We have a new family. With God as our father, Christ as our brother, and the church body as his bride. When Christ resurrected, he resurrected us all in him. And in his instruction to Mary, he reveals that in that new life, her relationship with him has changed as well. Do not cling to me. He's saying our relationship will now no longer be what it has been. He will ascend to the right hand of the Father. And as we'll see in the rest of the book of John in the coming weeks, he will send his spirit out. And he will take residence in them. Not just among them. Just as he's taken residence in us. And this change in standing in relationship would not have taken place if not for the resurrection. Many denominations and we'll call them Sunday public speakers today deny the resurrection. And it's not a new thing. Commonly falls under the label of Arianism. Going back to a church leader named Arius in the third century, but it goes back even farther than that. Taking from Matt Carter again, he states, the Apostle Paul makes his case in 1 Corinthians 15. Some in the Corinthian church were saying there was no resurrection of the dead. They claimed Jesus didn't rise from the dead and it really didn't matter. Not so fast, Paul says. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. That's how radical the resurrection is. If it didn't happen, we would still be in sin. And everything we believe about God, Jesus, and salvation would be meaningless. This isn't just a detail in the Bible. 
It's not some theory to try to explain away. It's not just the end of your gospel presentation. It's the defining moment in history. It's why we're here. It's why a relationship with God is possible. It's the very thing our lives depend on. And it's what brings the third change and the third point. The change to our purpose. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Christ said, go, and she went. She'd been given the most important information that anyone had ever or will ever be given. How could she not? Everything was different now. Her grief became joy. Her shepherd was dead and was now alive. She was dead and now alive. God's family now included her. Centuries of God's people had attempted and failed to reconcile themselves with God. And now it was possible. Now their God had taken on the punishment, conquered death, and gave us all life through his resurrection. We couldn't possibly overstate the importance of what happened in this chapter. And I hope we're getting that. I hope that we, me included, can walk away today and have this doctrine of resurrection planted firmly at the base of our faith and at the forefront of all we do in life. That we can be continually awestruck with R.W. Dale that he is alive. He is living. It's not just a Sunday school answer. It's amazing. It's beautiful. So I'll throw one more quote in before I close because shockingly enough there's A lot of great things people have said throughout history about these 18 verses. This quote's from Jared Wilson, one of my favorite authors, and he wrote in his first book, Your Jesus is Too Safe. A resurrection gospel is a full gospel. What we've become accustomed to in much of the church is a simplistic stripped-down gospel, a gospel that suggests you have issues, but Jesus died for you. Now be a good person. The full gospel says, your problem is a radical one. No less serious than death. And it requires radical intervention. No less powerful than resurrection. The full gospel says that the level and quality of your messed upness is complete, exhaustive, and irreconcilable by you. But the gift of God's grace extends infinitely, eternally, covering it all. 
It reconciles us fully to God in a way that can only be described as bringing a dead person back to life. So make no mistake. The sin that separates us from God will determine our eternity. Without faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we're dead. We are rightfully going to receive the wrath of a perfect God. We are unrighteous. With faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we are gifted Christ's righteousness. We are no longer guilty. We have new life in him. We were dead. And if you're in here and you put your faith in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, you are alive. I'm the last person in the world to criticize people for not being emotive, if you know me. But this is exception to the rule. This is something to get excited about. This is something to weep tears of joy about. This is something to take with us every day and reflect on every day. It changes everything. I want to leave you with a couple questions. How has your life changed through belief in the resurrection? How would your daily life change if the resurrection was on the forefront of your mind every day? I want you to take those with you and think and pray on them. I'll even help you a little bit with part of what your answer needs to be. It's the same as Mary's response in action. Go. Be a disciple of Christ. Be salt and light. Share this existence-altering truth with friends, family, neighbors that are literally dead in their sins. There's a famous atheist, the big fella in Penn and Teller. He's got a great quote. He says, I have no respect for Christians who do not proselytize. How horrible of a person do you need to be to believe that I'm going to die and I'm going to face eternal punishment and not tell me? Be scared of what I'll say, be scared of how it'll look. As scripture commands us, be representative of Christ. Be a giver of truth. We have the heavy and joyous truth of the gospel. That truth is not meant to stay in here with us. But to go out for our good and his glory. 
Let's strive to be a family that lives out that answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism. You knew I was going to do it. What is the chief end of man? Yes. <sighs> to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is so sweet. It's inseparable. If we are not enjoying Him, if we are not reflecting on this truth, then we are not glorifying Him. If we think we're glorifying Him and we're not enjoying Him, then we're not glorifying Him. It's a beautiful paradox that we all get to enjoy. Enjoy. 